Somebody told me this morning they were a little chilly. It's turned a little cold. I hope we're all warmed up after a wonderful time of worship and song. We've been clapping, dancing, twirling, and now we get to hear God's word together. So what a wonderful morning it is. I said last week in the sermon as we introduced this new series on Mosaic ministry and the series on our, uh, on our vision statement. I said last week that I wanted to argue that a diverse people making up one family was not just a, a nice biblical idea, but really that it's the goal, the end of Scripture. That's what Scripture is aimed toward from beginning to end. And so that's what I'm hoping to do today, to help us see how the vision of Scripture, or see how our vision to reach out, draw in, and create community, how that comes alive in the pages of Scripture, in the life of Jesus, and what the, how it's uh, already what the community of or the community of God, the family of God, is like already in heaven. So let's do that by reading together from Mark chapter three. We're going to read verses thirteen through thirty-five. And again, this week, I'm going to read from the First Nations version, in part because, again, this is a story probably that many of you have heard before, but I think hearing it with a different version, and also in honor of the Truth and Reconciliation Day today, I think it might give us some new ears to hear what God is saying to us. So, you'll notice that uh, the the translators of this Bible have given names to all the different disciples, and we're going to hear what they all are and to Jesus. So, creator sets free Jesus, went up to the mountain and gathered to himself some of his followers. He chose 12 of them to learn his way of being with him so he could send them out to tell the good story and have the power to force out evil spirits. He called them his message bearers. Here are the names of the 12 he chose. Stands on the rock, Peter, the name he gave to the one who hears is Simon. He takes over James, the son of gift of the creator, Zebedee, and his brother, he shows goodwill, John, whom he also called sons of thunder. Stands with courage, Andrew, friend of horses, Philip, son of ground digger, Bartholomew, gift from creator, Matthew, looks like his brother, Thomas. He takes charge, James, the son of first to charge, Alphaeus, Strong of heart, Thaddeus, one who listens, Simon, who is the firebrand, Zealot, and speaks well of Judas, the one who would betray him. Creator sets free Jesus, then returned to his house in the village of comfort in Capernaum, just as before. A large crowd gathered there, so that many of he, so many that he and his followers were not even able to eat. When his relatives heard about this, they tried to take him away from there because, of the people, because the people were saying, he, Jesus, has lost his mind. The scroll keepers from the village of peace, Jerusalem, were, were there also. He stands with worthless ruler Beelzebub, they accused him, for his power to force out evil spirits comes from the one who rules over them. So creator sets free Jesus, gathered them around himself and spoke to them with wise sayings, such as these. How can accuser Satan, that is the evil trickster, force out evil spirits? Can he defeat himself? If a nation wars against itself, this nation cannot stand. A family that fights against itself will fall. 
In the same way, if accuser Satan rises up against himself, then how will he continue to rule? No one can enter the house of a strong man and take away his goods unless he first defeats him. Then he can take away his goods. I speak from my heart. Humankind will be released from all their wrongdoing and from evil speaking, but whoever speaks evil of the Holy Spirit will not be released. This wrongdoing will follow them into the world to come and to the end of all days. He said this, Jesus, because they were saying of creator sets free Jesus, he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to him outside the house and set word to him that set word to him to come out to them. The crowd that was sitting in a circle around him said, "Look, your relatives are outside looking to looking for you." "Who are my relatives?" he asked them as he looked around at the circle of people. "Here they are. The ones who walk in the ways of the great spirit are my relatives, my father, my brothers, and my sisters." So far, the reading of God's word. Many of you probably know the story of Jesus calling his 12 disciples, even if you haven't heard that version of it. When I was a kid, there was a song that we had to memorize all the different names of the disciples. And maybe some of you even know some of the backgrounds of these disciples. Maybe you know that Peter and Andrew were fishermen that Matthew was a tax collector, that Simon was from a religious sect called the Zealots. But it takes some real time and love. Another word for research. Tanya and I agree on that. Research is love. Uh, But it takes some real time and love for us to grasp the significance of all of these different people that Jesus gathered together and called his family. Without getting into all the details, Suffice it to say this morning that normally, Jesus' disciples would not get along. James and John were fishermen, and they were businessmen. Matthew was the one who taxed the businessmen, and who taxed them rather unfairly. Most of the twelve grew up with families, but Mark, who wrote the gospel we're reading, describes himself as a young man during this time, maybe 19 or 20 years old. And did you know that the house that Jesus is entering here in, uh, in Mark chapter 3, that archaeologists have found that house? It's Peter and Andrew's house. They know exactly where it is, right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, almost in the center of town. And it's a big house. Peter and Andrew would have been pretty wealthy and pretty well known in Capernaum and maybe the surrounding area. But Thomas seemingly is from humbler circumstances. And then going beyond our text, there's many women that Jesus called to follow him. Some of them were as close to him as the 12, especially Mary Magdalene, who had been a demon-possessed prostitute. But let's not also forget about the Gentiles who feared God as well. A Roman centurion, two of them actually, who were, we would think of as Italian. The Ethiopian that Philip met on the desert road. Barnabas, who is from the island of Cyprus. And of course, the Apostle Paul, who's the last of the apostles whom Jesus appeared to. Paul was a dual citizen. His Jewish mother made him Jewish to the Jews. 
And his Latin dad made him Greek to the Greeks. I was looking up uh, images for the 12 disciples to put on the screen behind me that you, so you could see all of this diversity. And more than anything else, what came up when I googled images for the 12 disciples was black and white images that were meant to be colored in by children as a part of a Sunday school program. And obviously I didn't put one up behind me, but it got me thinking. I think we have a tendency to read this story in black and white. That we, we just read the black text on the white page and we far too easily miss all of the diversity that, that these characters had just because we, we, they sort of look all the same to us. Or maybe we, we color them in in our, own, in our own mind. We color them in all the same. But as we continue to consider the one family that Jesus brought together from such diverse and different backgrounds, beginning already here in Mark chapter 2, let's remember that these are diverse individuals from different ethnic groups, different socioeconomic groups, different genders, and different ages. To talk about a diverse group of people becoming one family is one thing. But Jesus actually did it. As he said in Mark 3, his family was not people who looked like him or who shared DNA with him. Although interestingly, what the First Nations uh, translation brings out is that Thomas, also called in Greek, he's called Didymus, called the twin. Historians think that he looked very much like Jesus, which is why he was called the twin. But I digress. Jesus' family wasn't just people who looked like him. Jesus said of his new family, Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. The crowds who followed Jesus could not help but see the diversity that I just described to you. The diversity in Jesus' family. Age and gender, socioeconomic and ethnic. I'm spending so much time introducing and reintroducing the diversity of Jesus' disciples because if COVID has taught us anything, and if our recent federal election has reminded us of anything, it's that we don't first trust people's words, do we? We trust what we see. If I've, had the, if I've heard something more than anything else it's in the recent weeks, it's people saying, oh, I'll believe it when I see it. Now, whether that's good or bad, I think it is the reality. And there's, there's some opportunity there. I think there's grace and maybe some relief for many of us who would be nervous getting up front of a big crowd or maybe even going in front of a, a small group and needing to speak. Jesus isn't calling all of us to be preachers. Thanks be to God. More importantly, the, the opportunity for us is that we get to see and celebrate how Jesus is making diverse people into one family still today. And then what we get to do is to invite our neighbors to see and celebrate how God is bringing diverse people into one family, even at River Park Church today. And so I want to spend a good amount of our time together this morning looking at how Jesus, our perfect example, how he, how he did it. How he formed one family out of these diverse people. And you can see there that he really took four ingredients, at least that I could find, a time Love, trust, and a shared dependence on God. Jesus spent time with his disciples. 
not only with the 12 that Mark mentions, but also with the 72 and with a bigger group than that. Jesus didn't just spend time with them once a week, but regularly, even daily interactions with those who are close to him. In our text, Jesus enters a home, not as an exception, but because he was always doing that. Jesus enters Peter and Andrew's home. And it's interesting that uh, the, the NIV says that when the crowds heard, or, or the crowds gathered because they heard that Jesus had come home. But we should know, with Christmas coming up, that Jesus wasn't from Capernaum. Jesus was, from, was born in Bethlehem, and really he was from Nazareth. So already in this passage, the crowds have learned something that maybe we forget. That Jesus' home had changed. That he spent so much time with his disciples that they became, they had already become his family, his home. He was living, staying, his ministry base was Peter and Andrew's big house on the lake shore by Capernaum, in Capernaum. Jesus was always spending time with people. And in COVID, this, I think this is even harder for us. It's hard for us because some of us are more quickly exhausted than we used to be. And others of us are, are desperate to be with people and we don't get the opportunity as much as we'd like. Again, this past week, even this morning, we heard about uh, capacity limits and other restrictions on gatherings in churches and in homes. And some of us are feeling uncomfortable. The longer we spend with people, the, the more uncomfortable we feel. Social anxiety is exploding around Calgary and our country and our world. And on the other hand, so many of us feel isolated and exhausted all the time. Nevertheless, time remains one of the most significant ways that we build deeper relationship with others and that God builds relationship with us. Jesus didn't just spend his time with his disciples, though. He spent his time caring for them. He healed people and taught them. Jesus gave the best of what he had to others. Jesus himself in John 15 says that no one has greater love than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. If love is about giving the best of yourself to someone else, then the greatest love is giving your whole self to someone else. Giving your, your life to someone, like a, as in a marriage or as in raising children, where you give your life away. Or as in giving your life for someone as a sacrifice, as Jesus did. That's the climax of love. But love begins with something else. Love begins with an interest in and investment in others. Love begins not in sharing yourself, but in caring for others, caring what they care about, being involved in what matters to other people. Three or four years ago, Kaylee and I went to a soccer game where our friend's daughter was playing. A few weeks later, we went to a violin recital where their other daughter was performing. It was a small two hours maybe out of a month, but it was a turning point in our friendship with this couple. Because those two small acts, in those two small acts, our friends began to understand that we loved them, that we cared about the things that they cared about, that we cared about their children, even in a small way, to the degree that they cared about them. 
and that we were going to involve ourselves in the things that mattered to them, not just the things that mattered to us. Jesus did that with his disciples as well. He loved them. He gave his best to them and involved himself in the things that mattered to them. Jesus also demonstrated trust and invited trust in his disciples. Trust is really about seeing the best in the other person. Kaylee and I this week visited with Karen Havinga, and she talked about life, or living life, uh, trusting God. Before all of you worry that if you have a visit with me, it's going to end up on the pulpit, I asked her, and she said I could share this. So she didn't even have to do that. But I, and I asked her because I loved what Karen said about living life, trusting God. She talked about living life DV. DV is a Latin short form that means God willing. And Karen remembers people growing up who uh, for many years would say, well, so-and-so is going to be married, DV, God willing. Or we'll see you soon, DV, God willing. When we trust in God... Karen said, we hold our plans more loosely because we see that God's plans are good for us and God's plans are best for us whether we get what we want or not. Whether we get what we hope for or not. Trust is about seeing the best in others. It's not about fully understanding. We still trust God even when we don't understand. And often, we don't like what he's doing in our lives, and we still are called to trust him. Likewise, in the church, trust is about seeing the best in others and looking for the best in others, being confident of their desire to follow God's leading. In times of division, trust is the first thing that goes, isn't it? It's so easy to listen to the accuser, Satan, To hear the lies that say, well, this person sees this topic different from me. Well, they must be thinking about it in a selfish way. It couldn't possibly be that they are trying to find a a way to follow Jesus and have just ended up at a different conclusion than me. Trust is often the first thing to go. But real trust doesn't require us to fully understand everything that our brothers and sisters in Christ do. This was a mistake that Jesus' mother and brothers made when they came to take him home. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing. They had heard some rumors, and so they decided that they knew better. They were going to take Jesus home to, again, the NIV says, take charge of him. They wanted to hide him from the world to protect their own reputation, their own way of doing things, because Jesus' way seemed Insane, crazy to them. Taking control is the opposite of trust. As Christians, we, we put our faith in God. But taking control is really about putting faith in ourselves and saying, no, I know better than you, or I know better than the Lord. We put our faith in God. And as Reformed Christians, we sometimes talk about faith-seeking understanding. We move from a position of trust in God and trust in one another, and then we try to understand. But our trust in God and our trust in other Christians doesn't need to require understanding. It's not understanding seeking faith, 
We don't wait to put our faith in God until we understand all of what he's doing and why. And we shouldn't for one another either. Just as, uh, just as a husband and wife who don't fully understand each other, who after years of marriage will say, I still don't understand why you do it that way. Yet they're committed to one another completely. So too in the church. Our purpose as God's diverse people bringing, gathering us together as one family, our purpose is to be together, to work together, and to celebrate God's work in and among us as individuals and as a big community and as smaller differentiated communities within that. To celebrate God's work in us as individuals and in our community means that we need a shared dependence on God. This is the last way that Jesus formed his family. The gospel writers remind us of many times that Jesus withdrew to lonely places to pray, to be with his heavenly father. And other times, most famously the Lord's Prayer, where he taught his disciples to pray and shared a life of dependence on God with them. But even in today's text, Jesus shows the Pharisees just how much he depends on God. When he's accused of using the power of Beelzebub, of a demon, to drive out demons, Jesus says, how can Satan drive out Satan? A family divided against itself can't stand. How can Satan drive out Satan? The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. understood Jesus' point when he said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Dr. King understood that we can't do the work of God in our own strength. We desperately need to depend on God together and to come to God together as partners, each seeking to glorify and to share in the strength, glorify God and to share his strength as he gives it to us in different ways and different measures. So why do we need family? Why do we need partnerships? Well, the kind of family that God is creating, that Jesus is creating here in Mark chapter 3, and that God continues to create, is a family of partners. We know as the New Testament goes on to elaborate that Christ is the head of the church, that we're not supposed to lord it over one another. And we know this not only because of the biblical mandate that we've already talked about, we also know that we need a family and we need partnerships Because practically, when we want to make room for diverse people, practically we want to do that. We want our church to be full of people who are similar to us, whoever we are, but also people who are different from us. We want to be a church where each of us individually and all of us together make up the mosaic of God's diverse but unified family. Because then when we reach out, Then when we draw in, then when we create community, we will be able to see the rich joy and diversity that God has for us. But before we close today, I want to touch on one of the big obstacles that we're facing. Tanya mentioned in her uh, message, I thought so beautifully, that when you're working with a diverse group, it's not just fun all the time. And that's true for us at River Park too. One of, our, one of our biggest obstacles, I think, is the my way is the best way 
kind of paradigm. It's so easy to fall into. It's the same attitude of Jesus' mother and brothers who came to take him home. They didn't approve of the way that Jesus was living his life. They didn't trust that he was following God in a different way than them. And they didn't take time to understand. They simply wanted to take Jesus back to their way of doing things. I am tempted from time to time, more often than I'd like to admit, to do the same thing that Jesus' mother and his brothers did. To try to get other people to see things my way. When we don't understand why others do things differently than us, and when we don't trust that God is working in and through, working his ways in and through them, just as he's working his ways in and through us, then we try to control. We say to ourselves, they have to join us. You have to come back to our house, to our household, to our way of doing things. But friends, remember for a moment. Remember Jesus. Jesus was the only one who did it perfectly God's way. Amen? He was the only one who didn't have anything to learn from anybody else. And yet he chose 12 guys. And beyond that, a bunch of women and a bunch of other people. 12 and 72 and hundreds beyond that. Jesus was the only one who did things God's way perfectly, and yet he chose to partner in family, to give his time, his love, his trust, to share his dependence on God with his disciples. None of us is as perfect as Jesus was and is. Our ways are not Jesus' ways. Our ways are our best attempts to follow God in the time and the place, the situation where he's put us. Other people have found other ways that are equally faithful to ours. Sometimes better, sometimes worse. Often stronger in one area and weaker in another. And but when we embrace one another as diverse people, of different gender and age and ethnicity, and what's the last one? Socioeconomic reality. When we engage one another as diverse people, we find diverse ways of following Jesus. Ultimately, partnership means that we can only go so far as we're all committed to go together. That's really important. If we want to be a family, if we want to reach out and draw in and create community together, then we can only do that to the degree that all of us are involved and all of us are invested we can only go so far as we're all committed to go. But it also means that we can go much further together than we could ever go by ourselves. Partnership requires all those ingredients that Jesus, or that I mentioned from Mark 3. It requires time and love and trust and a shared dependence on God. It requires us to give up something of ourselves in order to gain something greater. In this case, the family of God, the kingdom of God. And today, as we continue to look at our vision, I believe that God wants to lead River Park further than ever before. And so I want to challenge you. 
Not in a spirit of being judgmental or, or feeling bad about yourself. But just to wonder with interest, with maybe even with excitement. What do I need to give up in order to partner with God and with God's people at River Park? What do I need to give up? And then also to wonder, what does God want to give me? What does God want to give us? Real full partnership and family means that our community has multiple ways for people to belong. If we stick to ways of being and doing that work only for the us who are part of the major group, then we won't be able to make room for others. We'll continue to be only a community for a few. But if we remember that every way has its pros and cons, then we'll begin to be able to celebrate that my weakness is covered by your strength. And that your weakness can be covered by someone else's strength. That together we make something, make a family that is stronger and better and more beautiful than anything we could do by ourselves. Youth ministry at River Park is a prime example of this. Not only because we're trying, but because it's very much a work in progress. Most families in our major group value Sunday worship together as a family. Most families in our Asian community value a time on Sunday morning specifically for young, for young adults to worship, to learn, to grow together, focused on what matters most to them as young adults. And there are other groups in our church as well, but both of these groups value family. Both of them value worship and both of them value a specific space for youth. We found simply, we found different solutions to, this, to the same challenges. Each way has its own strength and its own weaknesses. We can't force everybody to do things one way. And so what are we trying? We're trying to take some time to develop some love for one another, to build some trust, and to come to God together so that we can find a way forward to partner together. It's not easy. It's not done. We haven't figured it out yet. And we keep getting delayed because of COVID. But doing things Jesus' way, we believe as a church, will lead to the blessings of the kingdom of God and the family of God and the blessings that are greater than any one group or any one person could accomplish on our own. A monocultural church, that is a church that has one way of doing things and one group that it puts a lot of or all of its energy into. That church works well for some, but poorly for others. But also has a more limited message to its neighbors. Remember what I said 20 minutes ago? That people, we are people who believe it when we see it. We can't expect that our neighbors are going to read the Bible, that they're going to see the picture of Jesus and the family that he's building and be interested or, or wonder about it and then come to River Park and ask questions. No. Whatever they see in us, they're going to assume that's what the family of God is like. 
If they see people who are always chasing after the next big thing and and finding ways to disagree about that too, they're going to think wrongly that that's what the family of God is all about. But if instead they see a diverse group of people who are partnering together, they're going to see a very different message. By loving each other, by creating a community that's like the heavenly church, people from every tribe and nation and tongue and language, we will show our neighbors and show ourselves a better way, a fuller form of the love of Christ. And they're going to be attracted, not because they'll be amazed by how good we are, but by the, because they will be amazed by Jesus. By a Jesus who still shows today the time that he gives, the love that he shares, who still today shows us that he trusts us by partnering together in his work and still today models for us the deep dependence on God, his Father. And perhaps the youth will embody that picture of heavenly perfection That Revelation talks about. It goes into all of these beautiful and idyllic things. And then uh, the the people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language gathered. And the, the lion and the lamb lying down together in a beautiful, perfect city. And almost at the end of it all, it says, And a child shall lead them. Jesus is our hope for the future. Let's bring our imperfections to him this morning in prayer. Look for his perfect way to guide us all together as we reach out, as we draw in, and as we create community. And let's celebrate the diversity that God has given us, the diversity of strengths and weaknesses that together we begin to make up the body of Christ. Please pray with me. Father God, You have given us a big vision to reach out, to draw in and create community, a kind of mosaic community where all people who call on your name, who bow the knee to Jesus are welcome to bring all of themselves, all of ourselves. God, we ask this morning that that you would hear our prayers Those of us here and many of us at home are tired and frustrated. It's hard to get through another week. It's hard to pay attention to worship when the kids are in the other room. Father, give us focus on the mission that you have given us together. Give us joy for the journey and the path that you have laid out before us. Continue, Lord, to build your kingdom here, to use even us to partner with you. Give us times of joy and laughter and love together. Give us a deeper love for one another, a love that seeks to understand before asking to be understood. And Father, most of all, help us to rely deeply and together on you. So that as we continue to wrestle with the problems within and challenges without, that we will always turn to you eagerly 
and turn to you together. Give us everything we need, Lord, and continue to be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.